The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. It's been my habit for uh, a long time to try and preach a favorite psalm during this uh, Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. And um, so uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the psalm that we recited uh, and read, uh, Psalm 34. Um, we're going to be talking a lot about fear this morning. And uh, I'd like us to think about uh, the things that we maybe have wrestled with in fear over the years. I was thinking about how different do fears of youth and children's fears differ from growing up fears. And uh, if you were to think about the things that you were afraid of when you were growing up, uh, can you think of something right now, the things that were, you were afraid of as a child, and then bring that fast forward into your life today and think about what is it that you fear today. I think if someone came to me and said, I don't, I'm, I've never been afraid of anything, I would, I would say you're a liar because, or you're out of touch or something because I really do think that um, we all have fears. And um, it's just that growing up fears, are, they get very complex, don't they? They get more subtle in their complexion. When I was a child, I, I think I was afraid of failure. As I look at my, I was trying to think this past week about some of the things that I was afraid of. Uh, I remember I failed uh, swimming lessons every summer for several years in a row. I might have told you this story already, but, uh, and one year, because it was getting to be too many years in a row, I, I uh, told my brother to, I swore him to an oath of secrecy and I lied to my parents that they ran out of badges. That's why I didn't have one. Uh, beginner's badge, you know. I, uh, I failed um, a unit in grade five. And I remember Mrs. Mighton uh, trying to comfort me and console me at my desk. And to make up for the shame that I was feeling, I, I, I told a lie to her. And I said, yeah, but you don't know what's waiting for me at home. As if my dad's going to beat me for failing a unit in grade five. I failed my driver's test the uh, first time, but what young man doesn't do that, eh? I mean, they got it out for us, don't they? No, I just... I mean, I, I think I was afraid of failure a lot of the time. I, I think my grown-up fears might be similar, but failure looks differently, maybe, as an adult, and how we inwardly interpret uh, our experiences and our circumstances bring us into different fears. Fear can make us do things that we would never do when we're not afraid. It can lead us to steal, to pretend, to disobey, to fit in, to fake it. Um, the worst decisions of our lives are made in fear, not faith. People make bad financial decisions because of fear of losing a bargain or fear of something in the future. People accept a job or sometimes people stay in a bad job because of fear of not finding a better one. People hoard money, and they hoard possessions for fear of not having enough in the future. And, and the list goes on. We could talk about fears on so many different levels, couldn't we? In 2015, we talked about David. We looked and studied the life of David from First and Second Samuel. And in all of the writings, I, I was very surprised to find that in all of First and Second Samuel, which is a summary of all of David's life, there's only one time that it says that David feared other humans. 
he had the fear of the Lord in him, but it's only one time that it says that he was very afraid of another person. And we're going to look at that time this morning. It's found in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're not going to read anything there. I'll tell you the story. But the Psalm 34 that we're going to be studying this morning is based on the experience that David has in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And uh, I'm going to tell you the story just to bring you into the historical context of Psalm 34. What happens is that David is, of course, running from King Saul. He is afraid of King Saul. Saul is trying to kill him. This period of time is actually about 10 years in his life. At one point, he actually leaves Israel because he thinks that he's safer in the Philistine country, the enemy country, than he is in his own homeland of Israel and Judah. And on his way, he goes through a little place called Nob, where at that time, the tabernacle of the Lord was situated, and the priest Ahimelech was there with various other priests. And he walks in, and he is afraid now. And he is running from Saul. And he enters, and he makes up a, a story. He, he lies, and he deceives the priest into believing that he's on a commission from Saul because he's not sure who he can trust at this stage of his life. And so he convinces the priest to give him the consecrated bread, which was meant for only priests to eat. And he and his men take the bread and eat it. And then he also convinces the priest to let him have the only weapon that is in the tabernacle in a symbolic fashion, not for use, but for, for, for memory. And it is the weapon that is behind the table of the ephod. And it's the weapon that Goliath had when David himself killed Goliath several years earlier. And so David walks out of the tabernacle with bread and with a weapon in the strange way that God provided, perhaps. David then goes off to the Philistine country, and he finds himself in, in uh, the city of Gath. Now, remember, fear makes you do dumb things. David takes the sword of Goliath and crosses over into Philistine country, not just any Philistine place, but Gath, the very hometown and city of Goliath, carrying Goliath's sword. <laughs> Do you see that there might be some problems here? Well, he is recognized, whether it's because of the sword or whether it's just because David was well-known at that time. They even knew the rhyme, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And so some of the servants of the king of that Philistine city, Gath, tell the king, and they bring David before King Achish, or sometimes he's called Abimelech. And so we read in this scripture in 1 Samuel 21, we read these words, David took these words to heart, and he was very much afraid of King Achish. Now, the, the word is actually in the King James Word, he was sore afraid. Where did you hear the sore afraid before? Remember the shepherds on the hillside? Angels appear, and they were sore afraid. In, in the Greek, in the New Testament, it was this mega fear. And in Hebrew, it was just this idea that he was, he was fearing a great fear. David was very afraid. Now, please hear me. I'm not criticizing David. I don't want you to hear me saying that. I do not know what I would do in the situation of having to run for my life. 
uh, of this complice, uh, complicit kind of feeling where I've been anointed as king, but I'm not being king, and God's not opening the door yet for me to be king, and I'm running like a hound in the wilderness trying to protect my life and so on. Uh, I have no idea what I would have done, but David's fear has temporarily replaced his faith in this situation of his life, and he begins to make a series of dumb decisions that lead him one to the next one to the next one, from fleeing from his own country, deceiving the priest, taking Goliath's sword, going to his very hometown, being arrested, and so on. And so what does David do in response to this whole situation? Well, in 1 Samuel 21, verse 13, as he is standing before king of, of Gath, he pleads insanity. In fact, he does not just plead insanity, he acts insane. And so verse 13 says, So David pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Now, isn't that a glorious picture of the king of Israel? Saliva, slobber, drooling down his beard ahead of this king. Thankfully, the king of, of, uh, Agath is, of Gath is not really amused. And in verse 14, he says, Look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Have I got a shortage of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And so he is expelled. David gets away with it. Now, I don't know what you think about this, but I'll tell you, I have read commentaries on both sides of the fence. Some who are saying that this is nothing more of a demonstrated cowardly act of a desperate man, while other commentaries say that this was the resourceful doings of a quick-witted and would-be king. <laughs> and maybe it's both. I don't know where you land, but the key issue for me, the key point here is that David is caught in a season of fear in his life. And he is making decision after decision that is not based on faith and trust in God, but in fear. And there are actually two psalms that he writes during this season of his time in, in Gath and in afterwards in a cave. The first one is Psalm 56, and the second one is Psalm 34, which we're going to look at. Psalm 56, interestingly enough, um, is written while he is still in the, in the possession of the Philistines. He might have been in a prison or, or somehow waiting to see the king or just after he saw the king and it was released. But in Psalm 56, it's written during the moment. And we get that in the sense of reading in Psalm 56, verse 3, he says, When I am afraid, I will trust in you, O God, in you whose word I praise. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? You can see that he is in the grip of it, and he's, he is trying to convince himself. Verse 10 of the same passage, it says, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? David is, is afraid and he is fighting his fear with good faith comment, with self-talk. 
We see this self-talk various times in the Psalms of David. I think a year or two ago, we studied Psalms 42 and 43. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. David self-talks a lot. That's not a sign of insanity. That's a sign of good, strong faith. When you convince yourself of what you know to be true, but you've lost sight of it in the circumstances that you find yourself. Been there before? I've been there. Self-talk is a good thing. David is talking to himself here. And so we come to then Psalm 34, which was actually not written in the moment in Philistine country, but rather chapter 22 of 1 Samuel says that when he's released, he hightails it, and he goes to a cave in Israelite country, the cave of Adullam, and there it says in the scriptures that his family comes to him, his parents, and other refugees, the, the discontented with Saul, the ones that are also running for their lives. And David becomes this center point for about 400 people in that cave of Adullam. And there it is that David writes this Psalm 34. And that's the context that he's writing in. I want you to understand that now David is not in the heat of the moment of fear. David is now securely in a cave in Israelite country with family and friends all around him. He is feeling secure again. Fear has left his gates. And now he writes this Psalm. Psalm 34. It's an acrostic poem, and obviously acrostic poems where every letter of the Hebrew alphabet starts each sentence all the way through takes a little time. I can't even make things rhyme. Every once in a while at Christmas, I'll make a present rhyme like roses are red and violets are blue. You think you're special. Boo-hoo-hoo. I don't know. Uh, you know... <laughs> Just tried that one on the spot. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's, I didn't write that one. <laughs> We're going to have to edit this tape. Um, but it obviously took some time. He's in a cave. He's in a secure place. And so he writes an acrostic poem. Deep breathing now. No fear. David is ready. I've written um, an outline in your bulletin. And I'm using a familiar sermon outline that I think I've, I've maybe... Uh, mentioned before. I think I got it from Alistair Begg. Not certain. Don't know the origin of it, but it's an example of what every sermon seeks to do. And you might want to use it if you're asked to speak in the new year on some subject. doesn't have to be a sermon. But these four points are a good idea to follow if you're asked to speak. And they're just got to remember four words, and you can outline any message this way. And the four words are, hey, you, look, do. Okay, that's all you got to remember. Hey, you, look, do. And of course, they all have their purpose. The hey is this idea that at the beginning of any message, you try to get the attention of your hearers. Some people say you have about two to three minutes to get the attention. I tried it this morning with looking back into your childhood past fears and so on. The second part is you, and that is where in a sermon or message you're trying to get the attention of people, but you're also trying to make them see the relevance of what you are talking about. This has to do with you. The third piece of, 
of the, of the message is look. And that's where you take the people that are now listening and tracking with you into the deepest part of the text where you're going to te- take them to understand something more about God and faith that comes out of the text that you're describing. And then the last point of a sermon is then do, where you, you actually leave them with a response so that they're not just hearers of the word, but doers also. And you leave them with something tangible that they can do in response to hearing the word that day. I think David follows that kind of pattern. So let's look at it together. The first part is in verses 1 to 7, where I think it's a a call to worship. David says, hey, in the first seven verses. And uh, we're going to look at those together. Psalm 34 And let's have our Bibles open just as we peek at it from time to time. Timothy Keller, the author and pastor, writes that when he was married several years ago, he and his wife, Kathy, had, in addition to the traditional vows that they'd recited, he had the first three verses of this psalm recited as well. So, After they finished their traditional vows, they recited to the congregation present, they recited Psalm 34, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. They even had those three verses inscribed on the inside of the bands of marriage that they gave to one another that day. And Timothy Keller writes about this event. He says, he adds that they all but ignored the words at the center of the text where David says, let the afflicted hear and be glad. He writes, that part was all but lost on us for at the time my wife and I at that age, neither of them had either even suffered so much as an ingrown toenail and they did not know what being afflicted was all about. So he writes this a few years ago when he was writing a book, and he says at that time now, he says, since that time, we've learned a little bit about suffering. We walked with many through affliction, and he says, I've concluded that the Bible is primarily a book about suffering more than it is a book about anything else. It's a book about suffering. If we would look at the life of David that we've been studying this fall, this year, We would have to conclude David faced a lot of suffering. So David, in his opening words of this psalm, having just come through a season of of, of extreme stress and distress, is writing from the security of a cave with family and friends around him. He's looking back, and now he writes the psalm. You know, that's kind of what the threshold of a new year affords every one of us. If you take the time, the threshold of a new year, these... This week between the two years gives you this moment of security to bring life down and think and reflect deeply on the past year and ponder the things of the coming year and think about the the lessons of faith that you want to take forward and grow upon. And so David, in this first call to worship, he says, he says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I wonder if David is thinking in starting that way, not just when things are good, but when I'm 
in stress and distress, I will praise the Lord at all times. I wonder if David was thinking that. Not just in the security of a cave surrounded by family and friends. And in verse 4 of this passage, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Notice that past tense. I sought, he answered, he delivered. He's thinking to the experience he just had in the Philistine country. And he's saying, I, I sought, but God answered and God delivered. What did he deliver him from? He says he delivered him from his fears. God did not always deliver David from all of the terrible circumstances. But God did deliver David always from his fears. Hmm. Let the afflicted hear and be glad, David's saying. God delivered me from my fears. Verse 6, he calls himself, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. His, his, his attention getter is a combination of declaration and personal testimony. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And so David gets the attention at the beginning verses of this psalm by saying, I went through something, God delivered me, he can do that for you. Then he goes on to that specific sense of you in verse 8 to 14. And this is the part of the psalm where David is now wanting those who have who've been listening to understand that they can relate to God as he has, that God can deliver them from their fears as well. Verse 8, he says to them, you taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't take my word for it. You taste and see that the Lord is good. David is addressing believers here. And so in verse 9, he says, Fear the Lord, you, his saints. Fear the Lord. Don't fear the circumstances that you fall into. Fear the Lord, the one who is over circumstances. As he says in Psalm 56, what can mortal man do anyway? And then in verse 11, he says, Come, my children. Again, he's on the you part. Come, my children. This is for you. Listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then verse 12, whoever of you, whoever of you, talking to those who are the children of the Lord, whoever of you, whoever of you would love life and see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. You see, it was a lying tongue that got David into all this trouble in the first place. As he lied to the priest, as he took the bread and the sword and then hightailed it off to the Philistine land, he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Do good. Seek peace. David is saying, this is a relevant message for you. And now finally, we go to the third portion, and that's the look passage, and that's verses 15 to 20 where David now is really taking us right into the central teaching of the psalm. This is where he wants anyone that's been listening to really hear something that is of substance for their own faith. And that's why he directs his attention away from his own experience and up to the Lord. And so beginning in verse 15, notice what David says. He says, 
The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears attentive to their cry. The eyes of the Lord and the ears of the Lord are on the righteous. He's attentive to their cry. Then he goes into verse 16, and he says, And the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Interesting, he's, he's giving this picture of God, that, that God's eyes and God's ears are on the righteous. His face is toward them, but his face is against the unrighteous. In other words, he's saying to you whose, whose attention he's gathered, he's saying to you, if you're going through stress and distress as well, if you have fears like I've had fears about the future, I want you to know you have the full attention of your heavenly Father. Have you ever seen a little child talking to his mom or dad? And mom and dad are, are looking elsewhere, and, they're, and the child doesn't think that they're listening, and so they grab the face. Have you ever had that? And they grab the face of the, of the grandparent or whoever, and they just turn the face. Mom! That's kind of what's happening here. He's, he's saying, you have the attention, the full attention of your father. His eyes are on you. His ears are attentive to you. His face is at your face. That's the God David knew. Do you understand how intensely personal your relationship with the Almighty is meant to be? If I would pray anything for us individually and corporately as a church, for the year to come in 2016, it would be that we have this intensity of a personal relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. That we know that His eye is attentive to us, our actions and reactions. His ear is listening and His face is toward us individually and collectively as we walk it out. He's watching. He's listening. He's looking. That's the kind of love that God the Father has for His children. He says in verse 17, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them, and He delivers them. Verse 18, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. This is a man speaking from experience. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. It doesn't say that He always saves them immediately from the circumstances that are so crushing, but He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's close to the brokenhearted. We cannot go into the year 2016 thinking that somehow God is going to correct all problems in our lives. In fact, the very next verse, 19, clarifies that so clearly. A righteous man may have many troubles. You may need to underline that verse. A righteous man may have many troubles. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome. I don't know how it got out there. But there is a brand of theology and a brand of teaching that is sold in the bookstores of Christian bookstores all across the land. And it somehow is teaching that if you walk the walk, 
And if you live faithfully toward the Lord, and if you pursue righteous living, that you will not have trouble. It says, a righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all in his time, in his way. We sang it just earlier today. He designs his dross to consume and his gold to refine. We, we know what God's will is in 2016. Well, not be a great book for a Christian bookseller, you know. God's will for 2016. The problem is that when they read it, they'd be disappointed because I would be writing about the, the, the will of God that's seen in Scripture. God's will is that He's going to burn up more dross in your life. The stuff that is not the creation and recreation of the Holy Spirit in you. All that sinful vestige of your past. He's going to burn that up. Just like He's been doing in 2015, He's going to keep doing that in 2016. That's God's will. And God's will for your life is that the gold that He's got in your life that faith and that joy and that fruit of the Spirit and the gifting He's given you for others, He's going to make it more refined so it's better gold. That's God's will for you and I. It's good to know. A righteous man may have many troubles. Don't let anyone ever tell you that faith will insulate you from trouble or sorrow. But the Lord delivers us in His time. In verse 20, a, a messianic prophecy that not one of the Lord's bones would be broken. Again, David is so confident in, in the Lord as he walks this through. He sees how even in the midst of strife, God spared him in the Philistine hands. Finally, the last portion of the message I'd like to share is that do part. David's counsel is to trust in the Lord always. He, in the last two verses, kind of creates a summary statement about how the Lord treats the wicked and how God treats those who serve Him. And uh, He's opposing the wicked, but in verse 21 it says, The Lord redeems His servants and that no one will be condemned who takes refuge in Him. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in Him. So, so what is the do? It's not real clear in this text, but what is the do? What's the take-home? What's the response? I think it's that the response is run to Him, Find refuge in Him. Call out to Him. Pray to Him. If you're like David, kind of an artsy poet, musician kind of type, then write a psalm to Him. Write a song. Sing a song to Him. Pray to Him in this way. Let your focus be absolutely Godward. And don't you dare get fixated on the fears that are carried through from this past year into the new year. Don't you dare let sin that hassles you, don't you dare get fixated and obsess over the sin, but rather get fixated and obsess over the Savior. Faith means you lift your eyes off of your experience and onto the Lord who delivers us from all evil. As David himself wrote in Psalm 27, verse 1, on another occasion, he said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom or what shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my heart. I will not be afraid. And so, 
In the words of John Newton, Though dark be my way, since he is my guide, tis mine to obey, tis his to provide. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform with Christ in the vessel. I smile at the storm. Let me read to you a poem as uh, I conclude. A poem that was written by a mother, a, young, a mother of a young child several years ago. Here's what she wrote. She said, He came with the test sheet clasped in his small hand and watched apprehensively as I scanned its contents. I had thought the mark would be higher. Did you do your best, son? I quietly asked of the solemn, upturned face. His answer was earnest. Yes, mother, I did. Then I'm satisfied, I smiled, and gathered his relieved little form into my arms. And how often since have I come to my heavenly father with concern and guilt over something that didn't turn out that I'd, as I had hoped or planned it would, and heard his kind words say, Child, did you do your best? Then I'm satisfied, and I've felt the security of his loving arms. Well, the woman that wrote that was my mother, and I was the little boy that she wrote it about. What about you? What are you afraid of? As you enter this new year, what is it that the last year has taught you about God and his faithfulness? That you can own and take into the new year and build on that so that your faith is going to grow in the coming year. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks as we ponder, Lord, the coming year, we reminded, O oh God, of how intensely personal the relationship that you have for us is. How incredible your loving ways are toward us who love you. Father, you have made, you have made your love so plain as we see men like David who were called men after your own heart and yet who blew it so many times. And we acknowledge, O oh God, that we, we do not walk the straight and narrow often very well, that we need your hand upon us. Would you help us, O oh God, to lift our eyes heavenward in 2016 more than we've done it in this past year? Would you help us, O oh Lord, to, to understand more about the intense love you have for us? so that we could depend on that love and rise out of the shame and the, and the guilt and the, the valley of destruction that we often walk in. And Lord, find ourselves breathing cleaner air in your presence, O oh God of grace, God of love, God of mercy. Let it be so. We pray in Jesus' name.